I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 5 as we continue going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come this morning grateful for your word, your inerrant, inspired word that we can count on. Here it is that we learn of you. Here it is that we learn of the good news of salvation in Christ. And here it is that we learn how to live as those who have come to know and place our faith in Jesus. I pray that we would we would be impacted this morning through your word, that it would penetrate into our hearts and souls and change us. So, Father, we commit these next moments to you and ask your grace on on all of us, whether we are the listener or the speaker, that you would do your work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We've already seen in our messages before today in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus makes many shocking statements in this message Matthew notes, as we have called our attention before, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew notes that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. And these verses before us today, we're going to be in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. These are among the most astonishing of the statements in this sermon. They are words that I think jolt us today when we read them and begin to understand their import. They jolt us as much today as they did those first listeners on the hillside when Jesus spoke them. They are also some of the best known words of the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, I I counted at least four figures of speech that we use commonly that come right out of this passage. In these verses, we'll have the, the, the little saying, we say, an eye for an eye. That's right here. We have the, the statement, turn the other cheek. It's right here. The shirt off your back comes from this passage, as does go the extra mile. All here in these four verses. Some people through the centuries have read these verses and scoffed at them, senseless idealism, they say. Others have latched on to them as idealists and created all kinds of interesting teachings. Some, like Gandhi, have said this passage, and Gandhi, of course, was not a believer in Christ, but he he came to this passage, he loved the Sermon on the Mount, and he came to this passage and, and it says it teaches and embodies what he embraced, absolute pacifism. If Gandhi were alive today, Gandhi would have a message for the people of Ukraine. And his message to the people of Ukraine would be, lay down your arms and just let Putin and the armies come in and do what they will. I know that's what he would say because in the 19, early 1940s, that is exactly what Gandhi said to the Jews in Germany. 
It is what he said to the British. By the way, it's an erroneous understanding of this passage, as I think we'll see. But misunderstandings in this passage abound. But if this whole Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching to you and to me as those who name His name, as our followers of Jesus, if these are teachings about how we are to live, we need to rightly understand what is He saying if we're going to put it in practice. And so we pick it up in verse 38, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus begins here, as we noted, there's a pattern here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is, this is the fifth time that Jesus falls into this now familiar to us pattern where he, he goes back to the Old Testament and pulls a quote from the Old Testament that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of the day have been teaching and Jesus quotes the commandment and then he goes on to explain how what they were saying was really a misunderstanding and Jesus gives us deeper understanding into the Old Testament law and in terms of this commandment we'll see this morning we will discover that his insight demonstrates that God's law is deeper and is higher than we ever imagined. When we hear the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, I don't know what comes to your mind, but what comes to my mind is, you hit me, I hit you back. You break my this, I break your that. <laughs> you, know, you poke me in the eye, I poke you in the eye. You break my tooth, I break your tooth called the law of retaliation. Or many of us grew up, it was just the law of the playground. Or it's the Texas way. I actually made that up since we talked about lying last week, I have to be honest. Totally made that up. But it was the way that I remember a lot of things in Texas, but it's probably that way in Missouri and anywhere else we are. Because really it's pretty much the way of the world. It is the theme of many stories, the theme of many movies. And if you're like me, it's one of my favorite genre of movie. I love the guy who gets even. Yeah, hang him high. The old Clint Eastwood movie. I love those old Clint Eastwood movies. Chuck Norris would have been out of business without this theme. Sylvester Stallone. Go get him. Make them pay for what they did. We like to see the bad guy get it, don't we? I think we all do. That's why that understanding of this text is very popular. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You give it to me, I'll give it back to you. And that was exactly the way that these leaders in Jesus' day were presenting this quote from the Old Testament. This teaching. It was interpreted and applied as a personal vengeance, a justification for personal vengeance. But what we're going to find out as Jesus brings us to this text, and he quotes the Old Testament text, 
is that what they had been teaching and what most of us feel and what most of us, you know, deep down we kind of like that thought, that's not what the Old Testament teaches. There's three passages in the Old Testament where that quote is found. And we have to go there to quickly look at those to see what the Old Testament actually said if we're going to understand what Jesus says as he quotes it and says, as we found the pattern, he gives an Old Testament quote. Then he says, but I say to you, and then he gives us even deeper understanding. So first, let's go back and let's see what the Old Testament says. The first instance where we find this quote is Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus 21, it lays out a scenario. And the scenario there in verse 22, it talks about two men who get into a fight. And they are into it and they're tussling and rustling and and fighting all over the place. And somehow or another, there is a woman over here who gets hit in the process of this fight. And not only is this woman there, she is pregnant. And she gets hit hard. It is such a hit that it causes her to go into labor and deliver a baby. And it says, if the baby is born without harm, and I'll pick up the quote there, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. That's if the baby is born unharmed. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, or eye for eye, or tooth for tooth. There's the quote. Or hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So... Two things I want us to notice right off in this first passage. The first is that this is not an instance, it's not a case for personal vengeance. You hit me, I hit you. Notice that presence of that little word, the judges. The husband of this wife can impose a fine on this man if the baby is born unharmed. But if the baby is born harmed or is killed then there is a stricter judgment. It is not carried out by a vengeful husband. It is carried out by a court, by the judges. They assess the fine and they assess the other things. The second thing to notice is that the judgment here is there is an appropriate retribution. In other words, the seriousness of the punishment matches the seriousness of the injury, the seriousness of the crime. One of the great frustrations many of you, as I often do, have when we sit and we observe the justice system is that oftentimes criminals get off with really no real punishment for a crime that really is pretty severe. Justice is not served. In this case, though, justice, the the, the punishment, the retribution matches and is measured according to the seriousness of the crime. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's the point. So, this passage, two truths we see. There's a civil judgment, not a personal vengeance. There's an appropriate 
retribution. Leviticus chapter 24 is the next passage where we find this quote. Verses 19 and 20. And it says this, If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Again, if we look at the context, which we don't have time to to look, but if we look at the context, the, the context is one of civil judgment, not personal vengeance, not a personal vendetta. But there are two other things I want us to notice. The retribution here is limited. There's limited retribution. The punishment here, as well as in the in the case before, is limited by the crime. So if if an eye is put out, you don't put out both eyes of the offending party. If the eye is put out, you don't kill the perpetrator. If an eye is put out, you don't put the eye out of the perpetrator and maim him for life, you know, cripple him. No, it's eye for eye. There is a merciful limitation here in the retribution. Another thing I notice, and it's not in those verses, but just a verse down below it, verse 22, it says this, You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. There is equitable justice. Justice is not meted out for those who are rich and not those who are poor. It is the same for rich and poor. It is the same for the sojourner, the foreigner, the alien, as it is for the native-born. It is not racially motivated. It is not culturally motivated. It is equitable justice. The same punishment for the same crime for all people. The third passage where we find this quote is Deuteronomy chapter 19. There in verses 16 to 21, again, another scenario is painted there in the picture in the law. And in this case, a man is accusing another man of a crime. And it's a serious crime, and he wants, he wants payment for it. So he drags, he pulls this into the court, and the law, it says here, it requires a thorough investigation and a trial. And if in the course of the investigation or the trial, it is discovered that the accuser is a malicious liar who has fabricated this whole scenario in order to bring harm upon someone, he's trying to use the law as a tool to hurt somebody else. Here's the quote from Deuteronomy 19. Do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid. And never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now again... Three instances, three times it's quoted in the Old Testament. All three of them have to do with civil justice, not personal vendetta, not personal vengeance. 
Two more things to grab out of this last passage that are, I think are worth noting. Notice that there is a fair trial. The accuser is protected. The accuser is not rendered guilty until there has been a trial and an investigation. It's to protect the accuser. And if indeed it's found out that the accuser has been falsely accused and maliciously accused, then the liar, the conniver, the false accuser is to get the punishment he was seeking for the person he was falsely accusing. Wow. And this law we read then was designed to deter evil. It was a deterrent. That the punishment would be fair. The punishment though would be carried out. It was to deter evildoers, criminals from committing crimes. It was also to deter other people from trying to use the law maliciously to hurt others and to be liars because the penalty here for lying and falsely accusing is severe. As you can see, these Old Testament laws make sense. They were given by God and they were good and valuable But the leaders in Jesus' day had twisted these laws and just excerpted this phrase and turned it from exactly what it was intended to not be, which was personal vengeance, and said, here's the excuse. When you are harmed, you can go out and get even. Now that is the background. When Jesus quotes this phrase, everybody gets, that's what's out there. Now, Jesus doesn't go into the long explanation that I just did. You probably said, why did you? Because we needed to know it. (laughs) Jesus goes on and gives the principle. Here's the principle. As he has before, Jesus says, but I say to you, and here's what he says. Jesus says, verse 39, you have heard it said, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, you know what, Pastor? When you read that, it sounds exactly like you were were saying that Gandhi believed this was. That Jesus is here calling us to pacifism, total pacifism. Some evil person comes against you to maliciously hurt you. And what we are to do is we are not to resist them. Just let them do whatever. So we better call up our Ukrainian brothers and sisters and say, put put down the arms. Jesus said, be pacifists. Now, at first reading, that's what it sounds like. Just roll over and let bad people do what they want. But is that what Jesus is saying? Three things we need to notice at the beginning here. The first is what we have to do is we need to go back and remember what Jesus isn't doing. What in the world do I mean by that? Well, let's go back a few verses in this chapter. We have to go back several weeks ago in our messages when we started this section of the sermon where in verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think 
that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, whatever Jesus is saying here, what he's not doing is saying what we have just read in the Old Testament in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He's not saying what you read there is wrong or it's just outmoded because I'm doing away with it. I've abolished that. That's important to realize. Secondly, because that's what Jesus is not doing, then it also behooves us to recognize what he doesn't say. What doesn't Jesus say? He doesn't say, my followers, you shall never ever use the provisions of the law to seek justice not out of bounds to to use the law to protect yourself or to get justice for yourself or your family. We have many examples in Scripture of that. The Apostle Paul, on at least two occasions, appealed to the law to get relief from suffering that was being inflicted upon him. Secondly, I, I notice as well that Jesus doesn't speak against the laws which punish evildoers with fines and injury and even death. And you see, there are those who take these words of Jesus and say that not only are we supposed to be pacifists, but the law is supposed to be pacifistic. And we are not to be punishing people with imprisonment or with death or any of those things. But Jesus doesn't say that. And so we assume that Jesus is saying the Old Testament law is still good and still valid. In Israel, Jesus also doesn't speak against self-defense. Your own ability to protect yourself or protect your family when you are in mortal danger. The Old Testament law allowed that. So Jesus isn't saying that all physical violence is wrong. Jesus is not a total pacifist here. To read that into these words is to not read the Scriptures fully. Now, what does Jesus say? He does say, oops, sorry, I didn't skip those. What Jesus doesn't say, doesn't forbid um, punishing evildoers. He doesn't speak against self-defense. But what does Jesus say? He says, do not resist. That's different than total pacifism. We need to understand that word resist. What does that word resist mean? It's really, it's a prefix anti matched up with the word stand. Or in other words, it means to stand against or to set against. What Jesus is saying, in other words, is that don't set yourself against the evil person. Evil people will come against us. And they will make themselves our enemy. They will act as our enemy by doing evil against us. But we are not to set ourselves against them as their enemy. 
Does that make sense? Somebody can be my enemy, but I don't have to be theirs. See, an enemy wants to hurt you. An enemy wants to harm you. An enemy wants to kill you. But an enemy, an enemy hates you, but I, you may hate me. You may want to hurt me, but I don't have to hate you. That's the point. I bear no malice. I bear no hatred. I bear no desire for vengeance. That's what Jesus is saying here. That is not a new teaching. Jesus didn't make that up on the spot. It was an old teaching. But the leaders had ignored it. We go back to one of the very books where they got this phrase, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God never said uh, wanting vengeance and taking vengeance was a good thing. They ignored this law to get the one that they wanted. By the way, if it bothers you that it says, you shall not take vengeance or hold a grudge against one of your own people, in other words, another Jew, that there's a big loophole here where you can take vengeance and have grudges against everybody else. However, if you go back to that passage, and we won't, but you just go down a few verses farther to verse 33, what you discover, it says this, it says... You shall treat the stranger and the traveler and those in the land with you as the native. Same treatment for your brothers and and the others in the land. Now, to help us put feet on this new understanding of the law, Jesus is just in, in that has just said vengeance isn't what that law was all about. He doesn't go back to what the law was about all the other things, what he does is he moves right to application. So what does this mean practically in life today? What are we to do? How do we put feet on this? If that law wasn't about vengeance, then what are we to do? By the way, what Jesus is about to say is really simply the other half of this verse in Leviticus 19.18. You don't take vengeance. Instead, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, in order to give us an application, He gives us four illustrations, four pictures of what you and I are to do, how we are to respond when people come at us and they trample on our rights. How do we respond? If we're not supposed to respond with vengeance, trying to get even, what are we to do? First illustration, verse... 39, the second half of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This isn't describing a dangerous physical assault. This isn't someone coming at you to do real physical harm or to kill you. How do I know that? Well, he says they slap. You usually don't kill people with a slap. Secondly, and by the way, 
in the Middle Eastern mindset, both then and now, a slap is a tremendous insult. But there's more, because he says, if anyone goes to slap you on the right cheek, interesting thing there, you see, is the picture is a right-handed person. And if you're going to slap someone with, with the right cheek, on the right cheek, the only way you do that is with the right hand. And you can do that with the right hand, but you hit the right cheek and it's backhanded. The reason that's important is because the backhanded slap was the ultimate insult. A slap is an insult. Matter of fact, in the Jewish law, if somebody slapped you, you could take them to court and sue them for that insult. But a backhanded slap was worth double. Okay? It's a double insult. It is the ultimate insult in their mindset. We might think spitting on me is the ultimate insult or something else. But for them, that was it. So what Jesus says is somebody comes and they give you a demeaning insult. The ultimate insult. It is an attack on my right to dignity. You have humiliated me. What are we to do? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. You don't go and try to slap him back, or you slapped me, I'm going to punch you, or even, you know, I demand satisfaction. You know, let us have a duel. <laughs> you know, they throw rocks at each other. I don't know what they would do. It's <laughs> not it. Jesus says, Turn the other cheek. Let it go. De-escalate the situation instead of escalating the situation. This was a shocking statement in the ears of the people on the hillside that day. Jesus says, be peaceable people even when others aren't peaceable toward us. He goes on. And if anyone would sue, verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Somebody threatens you with a devastating lawsuit. You have to understand, and most of the people in that day basically, typically wore two articles of clothing. There was a tunic, which is the, which is a, we would think of it kind of as a shirt, except it's long like a robe, but it's the, the what's next to your body. It's a lighter material. Then they had the cloak, which was on top of that, like my coat here, except again, it's probably a long robe. The cloak was more like a blanket material because, matter of fact, many people would use it for a blanket or a coat. And the law said they were going to sue this person. If they're going to sue them to try to get their shirt, there's what that expression, the shirt off your back, comes from, to get the tunic... If they're going to sue you for that, what it says automatically is you're poor. Because it's really the only asset you have worth taking. The Old Testament law had a provision in it that you could sue somebody. You could, you could take their shirt, but the coat was protected. The cloak was protected. You couldn't take that from someone because to take that would expose them to the elements where they would freeze at night. It could be deadly. It's the only blanket, presumably in this case, somebody who's being sued for their clothing, they are the 
poorest of the poor. They only have one set of clothing. And so the law says you can't take the cloak. And Jesus says somebody's taking you to, they, they're threatening to take you to court and they're threatening to take your shirt. Jesus says, let them have it and throw in the cloak. And the crowd goes, Do whatever the law demands, or even if it doesn't make it to court, settle out of court. Give them your shirt and give them your coat. More than the law demands, you give. They have attacked our right to justice. Jesus says, let it go. Be peaceful and generous even to those who would sue you to make you destitute. Thirdly, there's a coerced service, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Roman law permitted a soldier to grab any civilian and force them to carry his pack for one mile. Or whatever he's carrying. Here, you carry this. doesn't matter who you are. You have to do it. One mile. Jews hated this. They hated the Romans. They hated here being treated like slaves. It was demeaning. It was terribly inconvenient. Carrying some kind of pack, it could take 20 to 30 minutes to walk and carry somebody's burden, especially up hills and and difficult terrain. So it would be terribly inconvenient an hour or two out of your day, doing what you don't want, wearing yourself out, carrying somebody else's stuff, would that mess with your day? Would that mess with your attitude? And Jesus says, folks, when that happens, at the end of the mile, say, can I carry this another mile for you? And again, the crowd gasps. This is shocking stuff. Shocking when we think of it and we read it and we wonder, what is he saying to me? Lastly, he says, somebody comes up to you, verse 41, says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He is 42. There's an annoying request. If you've ever had somebody beg, it's annoying, right? Usually when we pull up here at the exit and they're there, you know, you do the old, (laughs) they're still there. Don't make eye contact, right? It's annoying. And you have to say no or have to say yes or you have to deal with it But he says, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The assumption here is that this is a person with a legitimate need. Yes, Scripture does call for you and me to have discretion with our giving. There are exceptions where we don't just give. I can think of several in Scripture. One, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where he says, If a man will not work, do not let him eat. Don't give food to somebody who's lazy who won't be productive. Don't feed them. You're enabling them, not helping them. 
Second John, the little book of Second John, says don't give hospitality, don't give support to those who are false teachers. When you do, you share in their evil deeds. We can go to others, but that's enough to say there are limitations where we can say, no, I'm not going to give to that. But by and large, that's not the issue. And the assumption here is somebody with a legitimate need. The Scripture says, Deuteronomy 15, for example, one of scores of verses in the Scriptures, do not harden your hearts or shut your hand against your poor brother, but open your hand to him and lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Again, Jesus isn't the first one to say, give. Give generously. Meet the needs of those who are poor. If we're going to err in giving, I think we should err on the side of generosity. Jesus is saying to His followers then, guys, you need to yield your rights. We need to yield our rights and we need to be peaceful and generous with Everyone. And my reaction to that, honestly, is, really? Really? You really mean for us to do this? When we really walk through the implications of this, this is radical stuff. This is not our natural inclinations. To let go of our dignity. To let go of our right to justice at times. To let go of our liberties. To let go of our property. Why would anyone do that? I'm glad you asked. Four quick answers and we're done. Answer number one, because Jesus said so. Jesus tells us to right here. Now, we don't like that answer. We didn't like it when we were kids and our mom told us that and we don't like it now. So I'll give three more answers. Answer number two, because Jesus has already walked this path. During communion, I read from 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. Jesus already did it. He calls for us to follow Him. And Peter ends, but he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Third reason why we should live like this, because God is in charge and because God will make it right. He judges justly. We need to be like Jesus and trust that God's going to handle it. If you get taken advantage of, you get taken advantage of. God's going to make it okay. He's going to make it right. If you give generously and it hurts and it costs you, God's going to make it right. Somebody mistreats you, God's going to make it right. 
You know, the Bible says that when we trust in Jesus Christ, we become God's people. John chapter 1, we become children of God. Earlier here in Peter, once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. We're His people. We are His possession. You know what that means? That means when somebody hurts you, who are they hurting? God. Because you belong to Him. When somebody takes your stuff, whose stuff are they taking? God's. Because we and everything we have belong to Him. Wow. And you know what? Just Do you take it personally when somebody hurts, those of you moms and dads, you take it personally when somebody messes with your kids? I have a feeling God takes it personally when people mess with His. Lastly, why should we live like this? Because as Jesus followers, our focus is in heaven, not on earth. That really is the underlying theme all the way through this Sermon on the Mount. It's all about heaven. Jesus calls for us to really put feet on our faith. Do we really believe Jesus? He says, heaven is coming and it's worth it. Do you really believe it? This calls for us to put feet to that. Go back to the earlier part of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, during the kingdom. Blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake, for theirs is The kingdom of heaven. The whole focus, the only reason any of this makes sense is if your destiny is heaven. And if your focus is there. If your destiny is not heaven, if your focus is not heaven, none of this makes any sense. And the only thing that makes sense is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Buddy, I'm coming for mine now. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says. Going back to the Beatitudes. We can be war makers. That's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Or we can be peacemakers who say, I yield my rights. I let it go. I entrust it to God. As people like that, Jesus followers like that, who will impact this world for Jesus Because people will look and say, the only way that makes sense is they really believe. They really believe in Jesus. They really believe in heaven. Let's pray. Father, this is some tough stuff and I've gone a little extra long. But it's stuff we need to hear because we wrestle with this. Every one of us. Oh, how we long for justice, we think. What we really want is payback. We want vengeance. Because we want justice when it comes to us. We want mercy when it comes to us, not justice. But we've received mercy from you. And you call upon us to be those who give mercy to others who do not deserve it. Lord, that takes some changing in us. We can't do it on our own. We need your help. But I pray for every Jesus follower in the room today, everyone who's watching at home. Father, that we would would right now say to you, Lord, that's what I need to be.
You've given us such grace. We've celebrated it at the table of communion today. May we be those who give grace. Not those who retaliate. Not those who are looking for vengeance. But those who are the peacemakers. Those who are the merciful. Lord, help us to grow those changes in us so that You will be honored in us, so that we will walk in Jesus' footsteps and be more like Him. And so the world that is out there that so desperately needs Your grace will look at us and see Your grace in us. And it draws them to Jesus. This we pray in His name. Amen.